This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good morning, and yes, and welcome to the commencement ceremonies for the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. So welcome to Goldman School faculty, Goldman School students, Goldman School staff, some babies apparently, which is great. (laughs) Welcome to family, friends, and most of all, welcome to the graduating class of 2016. Welcome. So my name is Henry Brady and it's my privilege to serve as the Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. Today we are here to honor, celebrate, and congratulate the Goldman School Public Policy Class of 2016. The Class of 2016 has done great things at GSBP. Uh, All-nighters, IPAs, APAs, all sorts of things. 24-hour, I guess it's 16-hour, whatever-hour project these days eight hours, something. We keep changing it because of the web. Uh, That's true. (laughs) And they have been especially effective in making us think even harder about power and privilege in American society through a series of classes, symposia, and reports. My thanks to them for that. Why is power and privilege something we should consider in public policy? Why should we care about it? In fact, this leads us to the sort of first question, why should we care about public policy? Indeed, as I'm sure you've all been asked many times, or maybe you've been the askers for the people towards the back of the, of, of the hall, uh, what is public policy? I'm sure that your family members, friends, and even GSPP students themselves have asked this question, what is it? And in fact, I'm sure many of the students here have even been asked, Why don't you get a degree like an MBA or a law degree? Why a public policy degree? The answer to these questions is really that public policy goes beyond asking how to make a profit, which is what MBAs learn about, or how to apply the law, which is what lawyers learn about. It asks these much deeper questions. How can government devise rules that make the private sector work effectively to achieve good ends and not bad ends, and not just to make profits? How can governments write laws that are fair and just? How can governments and nonprofit groups solve the hard problems, the really hard problems, that the private sector cannot solve or only solves partially? Pollution, poverty, public health, providing defense, and ensuring safe communities. Business degrees and law degrees do not provide the skills to answer these questions. They take the current distribution of power and privilege as fixed. But public policy schools do ask these questions, and they do not take the status quo as fixed. Yet at the same time, public policy analysis has a maddening characteristic that I know at times annoys even our students. And that is, in many situations, we are the people who talk about how much things cost. 
It is public policy analysts who point out that Donald Trump's tax plan would lead to a drop in revenues of almost $10 trillion over 10 years. That would be a reduction in federal revenues of about one-third each year, more than we pay in Social Security each year. Similarly, public policy analysts who have been chairs of the Council of Economic Advisors and Democratic Administrations have pointed out that the claims by the economist Gerald Friedman that Bernie Sanders' economic policies would have huge beneficial impacts on growth rates, income, and employment cannot be supported by the evidence. And according to the former heads of the Council of Economic Advisors, they, the predictions made by this advisor to Bernie Sanders, exceed even the most grandiose predictions by Republicans about the impact of their tax cut proposals. This is annoying. <laughs> it's annoying when somebody has a vision to tell them that their vision simply doesn't pencil out. So one of the impacts of public policy analysis seems to be that it undercuts political visions that depart from the mainstream. Does that mean that public policy lacks vision? Does it mean that it is inherently conservative? I don't think so. But we do face what our public policy students have come to recognize as, pardon the technical language, a decision problem with a budget constraint. That's something we teach our students from the very beginning. On the one hand, we want our students to think boldly and to consider big changes in society that can make it better. But on the other hand, we want them to consider the constraints that are there because of budgetary and political realities. This may suggest that we turn our students into skeptics about public policy. But I think we turn them into clear-eyed realists. And I think that is very good, as long as it is coupled with a strong sense of the need to serve the public, especially those who are less powerful and less privileged. I think it is good because there must be somebody, especially in these days, who brings evidence and reality into political discourse. Now, this is a tough thing to do these days. We've seen a lot of unreality, a lot of posturing, a lot of statements with no evidence whatsoever. So, we teach our students to do two things. First, we teach them to get the best possible evidence about what works and how well it's going to work. To get at the truth as much as possible, because we do not want to be like ideologues of the left or the right or the center, and there are ideologues of the center as well, who ignore facts in favor of rhetorical formulas. We want to get at the truth because we do not want to deny the evidence that shows that some things have not worked very well. Racial profiling has not worked very well. It's a bad way to undertake policing. We can do better. The concentration of public housing often creates ghettos that make life worse for people. We can do better by dispersing housing. Food stamps can pay big dividends in adulthood for children who have access to them. We show how food stamps can actually be a positive benefit, not just as the fair and just thing to do for people who are in poverty, but also something that can actually provide young people who get them with great benefits that persist into adulthood and mean when they're 30, 40, 50 years old, they do much better than they otherwise would do in terms of uh, more employment and fewer health problems. We like to show 
that climate change is real and it is man-made and we could actually do something about it if we limit emissions of CO2 and so on and so on and so on. We want to bring evidence to bear. Sometimes that means we don't agree with ideologues of the left, the right, or the center. We argue, in fact, that the evidence points in a different direction. But in addition to talking about the importance of evidence and knowledge, we also teach our students to take into account the needs of the communities that they serve. We know that values and priorities must be developed in conjunction with everyone, especially the poor, the marginalized, and those who lack wealth and power. Our students, the class of 2016, helped remind us of this in the last two years, and we appreciate that because we believe it's fundamental to make sure that public policy creates a fair and just society. So, as long as inequalities exist and people have unequal opportunities to develop and practice good lives, to get good lives, to obtain the rewards they deserve from their hard work, so long as that's true, we want to make sure that we have public policy students who will analyze those situations and find better ways to solve the problems that confront America and not just rhetorical formulas. The class of 2016 knows these things, and I thank them for reminding us about them with their emphasis upon power and privilege. But I hope that we've also reminded you and helped you to understand that just wanting to do good is not enough. We have to make sure that the things we propose, the ideas we come up with, actually will do good. Because otherwise, we risk spending a lot of effort and time going down the wrong road and doing bad things. And there's just nothing worse than thinking you're doing good, but actually doing bad. And I'm very hopeful that the public policy training you've gotten here will help you understand better how to really do good in the world and to really make it a better place. And I know each and every one of you wants to do that. And so I hope you've found in our public policy curriculum and what we've taught you, the tools so that you can, in fact, do those things. More than ever, nothing could be more important than to have dedicated, committed, thoughtful, and immensely talented individuals who want to solve the world's problems. I know that you are those individuals. That's why I'm so thrilled to be at a public policy school. That's why our faculty are so thrilled to be at a public policy school. We now hope you're armed with more evidence and more ways to think about the problems of diverse communities. I will watch your progress with great anticipation, and I will be awestruck, I am sure, as I always am, by what each and every one of you does in the future. Congratulations to you all. Let me end with one final thought. Let us thank all the families, spouses, partners, children, and friends who have supported our graduates during their time at GSPP. Let us thank all of those people who asked, what is a public policy degree anyway? What are you really learning? 
Let's take a moment to recognize the people in your lives whose support played a major role in helping you achieve this great accomplishment. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for producing these extraordinary students, soon-to-be graduates, uh, and thank you for all your support for them. Now, I'd like to introduce our next speaker. Jonathan Stein is an MPP JD, a Master's of Public Policy uh, lawyer alum from the class of 2013. He's a member of the GSPP Alumni Association Board of Directors. He's a civil rights attorney, currently with the Asian Americans Advancing Justice Asian Law Caucus, the nation's oldest Asian American civil rights organization. He was previously at the ACLU of California. Jonathan served as student regent on the University of California's Board of Regents while he was a student here at the Goldman School. He also, and before that, was at Mother Jones Magazine as a researcher and assistant editor. Jonathan currently serves as chair of the board of directors of the nonprofit organization California Common Cause and is a commissioner on the City of Oakland's Public Ethics Commission. Please welcome Jonathan Stein. Uh, good morning and congratulations. I'm here to tell you how you can get involved in the life of the Goldman School after you graduate. But first, one second on why you should get involved in the life of the Goldman School after you graduate. So obviously, because Goldman is an amazing place, and you met amazing people, and you accomplished amazing things. But more than that, I think, because the next generation of leaders and organizers and activists and idealists and dreamers have the right to access this amazing place and thrive here, just as you did and as I did. The work of the Alumni Association helps make that possible. So I hope you'll think about being involved with Goldman after you graduate as your way of paying your experience forward. Okay, so uh, four ways that you can get involved in the Goldman School. Um, one, <laughs> APAs and IPAs. Soon you'll have jobs, and then soon you'll have bigger and more impressive jobs, and soon you'll be 32 and giving TED Talks. <laughs> or you'll be like me, and you'll be 32, wondering how your classmates are giving TED Talks. <laughs> right? Like, how do I get a TED Talk? <laughs> Anybody. Just... But my point is that soon you're going to be in a position to hire Goldman students for IPAs and APAs, and I hope you'll do so and treat them right when you do, okay? Uh, two, alumni of this school call every single new admit every single year to try to convince them to come here. The personal touch that differentiates us from dramatically inferior policy programs on the East Coast... <laughs> That personal touch starts even before students arrive, okay? And you can help us with that. Number three, um, the Alumni Association is recruiting regional coordinators, a lead alum in each city who's going to be the hub for the social activity and the networking of the alumni in that city. You can join the Alumni Association board and help us make that program and other programs like it a reality. Or you can be a regional coordinator. 
or you can find your regional coordinator and just go to the happy hours your regional coordinator organizes because every little bit counts. Every little bit of involvement with your classmates counts. Every cocktail counts. Um, and then lastly, donate to the school. This is the hardest one, I know. But think about the living room couches. Those things are like a million years old. We bring, we bring senators and ambassadors to the school, and we show them world-class scholarship and couches from the Carter administration. And someone is going to have to replace those, and it's going to have to be us. Jerry Brown doesn't have the money in his budget for public higher education generally. Forget about couches for graduate students to nap on. And, and more seriously on this topic, I know you're going to go work for nonprofits. I know you're loaded with student debt. So it was for each and every one of us. But the resources to keep this place excellent and keep this place accessible have to come from somewhere. And they can come from student fees, increased student fees, which is tantamount, I think, to pulling up the ladder behind us, or it can come from other places like alumni giving. Um, there are other ways to get involved with the Alumni Association, um, but I don't have much time. You can go to the Alumni Association section of the Goldman website, which I'm sure you did not realize exists until just now. <laughs> but it exists, and you can learn more about us, and you can figure out how you're going to pay it forward. Congratulations from the Alumni Association and from the alumni of the Goldman School. We're thrilled to welcome you into our ranks. Best wishes with everything that comes next for you. Um, and now, the, the most important thing I have to say, I'd like to welcome to the podium the single finest, most caring, most student-oriented higher education administrator I have ever had the privilege to work with, a woman who knew your name before you arrived on Admit Day, who knew your name every day you were on this campus and will know your name still 10 years from now when you reach out to hire a student for an APA, a woman who frankly should just be running UC Berkeley at this point, Martha Chavez. the class of 2016 for giving me the honor to speak to you on this very special day. Today, as we celebrate the amazing accomplishments of these graduates, I hope that you all feel as lucky as I do to have them in your lives because they are truly exceptional individuals. As the Goldman School's Senior Assistant Dean for Academic Programs and Dean of Students, I have one of the best jobs in the world. I get to work on all aspects of student and academic life and ensure that we deliver the very best educational resources so that our students achieve academic and professional success. Today, I am filled with so much pride, joy, and gratitude because I have spent so much time with these students. I am humbled that you have asked me to speak to you today. As I began writing my remarks, I thought it would be appropriate to focus on the past, the present, and the future. Graduates, this trilogy should be familiar to all of you. 
Remember when you were applying to the Goldman School and you had to write a statement of purpose <laughs> that addressed where you've been, where you are now, and where you want to go, and how is the Goldman School going to help you get there? <laughs> I'm sure that you remember writing this essay fondly. Today, it seems fitting for me to tackle what we've asked you to do, to reflect upon the past, the present, and the future. These issues help us to gain a comprehensive understanding about a student's background, including where they have been, why they have spent their time working in specific areas and issues, what has influenced their lives, and most importantly, what has inspired all of you to pursue a public policy degree. So let's begin by looking briefly at the past. And by doing so, I want to underscore how our past influences our present and future. Graduates, almost two years ago, on Monday, August 25th, 2014, we kicked off the academic year with our annual fall MPP new student orientation. We started off the day with a policy exercise where you debated the issue of immigration and more specifically, how the U.S. should deal with the growing problem of children at the U.S. border. Clearly, this was and still is an enormously complex, politically sensitive, and challenging issue. This policy exercise marked the beginning of many discussions that you would have about the most difficult and pressing issues facing society today. The issue was particularly personal to me because like many people in the United States, I was born in another country. My parents, sisters, and I came to the United States from Mexico through a government program which facilitated our legal entry to this country, but which required that my parents work as migrant farm workers. Growing up in the California Salinas Valley, we faced extreme poverty and lived in a migrant camp throughout the formative years of my life. Due to our difficult financial situation, my parents were unable to obtain even an elementary school education. Despite the challenges, it was my family's unrelenting work ethic, love, support, and strength which helped me to become one of the first in my family to obtain an elementary, secondary, and college education. Despite the challenges, it was my family's unrelenting work ethic and my past, I never thought that I would have the privilege to stand here before you today at one of the premier institutions of higher education to deliver this address, and for this opportunity, I am truly grateful. So today, I want to share with you three key things that I have learned about my past experiences and how you can leverage your past to create a better present and future. First, I learned that no matter what obstacles come your way, you have to be bold and resilient. You cannot let past challenges and adversity negatively impact your future. When my family and I came to this country, we had limited resources, and I could have easily given up on education. But instead, I chose to lever leverage every opportunity to get an education and have a better life. I never gave up, and I have never taken anything for granted. 
I urge all of you to be bold and resilient as you move forward in your lives and careers. Do not let past challenges bring you down nor limit who you are and where you want to go. Instead, use your past to create a better present and future. Second, I've learned that we must appreciate where we come from and embrace our differences. As an immigrant to this country, I have always had two identities. The fact that I speak two languages and have experienced two cultures has allowed me to view the world through different lenses and bring different perspectives to the table. Each of our unique backgrounds are assets which will help make this world a better place. Our future will rely on a society that acknowledges and respects difference and supports the full inclusion and participation of people with diverse cultures, backgrounds, genders, languages, and perspectives. I intend to continue using my past background to improve the world around me, and I hope you do too. Third, I also learned that your past is critical in helping you figure out what inspires you and to determine what direction you want to go in. My past experiences have inspired me to pay forward what was given to me, and I intend to continue creating educational opportunities for others. As we look to the present, today, you leave the academy, and I hope that your most recent past experiences at GSPP have helped you to, de to determine your future path. In closing, I urge you to never forget where you came from and why you chose to pursue a public policy degree. Whether it was due to a personal lived experience or something inspired you or you saw an injustice in society that you wanted to address, no matter what has led you to this point as you embark upon your future, I urge you to channel your past experiences, education, and knowledge to create a better world. Class of 2016, your future is bright. Be bold, be resilient, respect and appreciate differences, and find work that inspires you. Congratulations, class of 2016. Your future awaits you. You have a choice. Make it great. Thank you. One of the great blessings of being the Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy is to have uh, people like Martha Chavez here as our Assistant Dean, but also to have a whole lot of people who are around the auditorium right now who are staff members who do an extraordinary job. And I, I really would like to stop and say thank you to them. I honestly believe, and, and say it actually uh, all the time, around campus that we've got the best staff and the best people on campus and uh, we really do. They're really quite extraordinary. Everybody dedicated to this place and dedicated to the, the mission and goals of the, of the Goldman School of Public Policy and that's just a wonderful thing. So thank you to everybody. So I'm here between two remarkable people. First Martha with her extraordinary story and capabilities and now our commencement speaker, who is another person with an extraordinary story and extraordinary accomplishments. 
Uh, California Assembly member uh, Shirley Nash Weber was born in Hope, Hope, Arkansas. That's, yes, Bill Clinton was born there too. Uh, she is the sixth of eight children born to the late Mildred and David Nash. She was born to sharecroppers. By age 26, however, she was Dr. Shirley Weber with a BA, MA, and PhD in the area of speech communication from UCLA. By the age of 26, her specialization is movement studies in black nationalism, uh, and she just built upon that early success. By age 23, she became a professor at San Diego State University while she was finishing her PhD, I presume. As one of the original faculty members, she has been responsible for the development of the Africana Department's curriculum and recruitment of faculty and students. Uh, she was administrator of the department in two stints. Uh, the department grew in national reputation and became one of the strongest undergraduate Africana studies departments in the country. But that's not even the beginning. In fact, in 1988, Dr. Weber was elected to the San Diego Unified School Board, where she served two consecutive four-year terms until she retired in 1996. She made amazing progress and became extraordinarily knowledgeable about K-12 through education. She already had great knowledge of higher education. Uh, she became very knowledgeable about K-12 through education in these two stints. For her service, she's received numerous awards from a host of organizations, including the NAACP, the Urban League, Negro Business and Professional Women, California Women in Government, National Council of Black Studies, National Women's Political Caucus, and many, many others. This is a person who is extraordinarily accomplished. She's now an assembly member from San Diego, and we're honored to have her as our commencement speaker, Dr. Shirley Weber. Thank you, and, and good, morning. good morning. One more time, good morning. good morning. Okay, I think it's a good day. I think it's a great day. Obviously, it's your graduation, and you're to be commended for uh, the hard work that it takes in order to accomplish the things that have been, that you've set out to accomplish, and knowing that there'll be lots more to come. To Dean Bradley and to um, the members of the faculty uh, and staff who are present, thank you so very much for this invitation. Um, I know the selection of a graduation speaker is a, is a very difficult task, and I understand that you first set out to select the, the best and the smartest in your field, and the answer came back, no thank you. <laughs> then you said, at least we should have someone who's articulate. So you did that, and the response again was, got something else to do. <laughs> then you said, okay, well, at least get somebody to look good. And the response again was, no, thank you. <laughs> so then I received a letter from one of your faculty <laughs> and the staff, and I said, okay. My staff said, why are you agreeing to this? I said, my God, I turned them down three times, and they kept coming back. What am I to do? Let me just simply say that I'm honored to be here. <laughs> Graduation is a very special time, and I don't take it lightly. 
It truly is the journey of a lifetime for young people and for those and everyone else in the family. I commend your families because I know it takes a lot of love, takes a lot of support, a lot of listening to young people and listening to spouses and others when they're involved in an educational experience. I've been, as I said, an educator since I was five years old on the back porch of the projects in Los Angeles when I got my first chalkboard. Some of you don't know what chalk is, but anyway. <laughs> it's like a whiteboard, but you know, you use, anyway. Um, well, I began to teach all my peers uh, and my friends. They, uh, they, I was, probably didn't know what I was doing. I was doing all their homework. Um, but I enjoyed school, and it was an important part of my life. So I want to congratulate all of you for this, for this extraordinary accomplishment. I don't take it lightly. You should not take it lightly because it will put you in a position to hopefully transform the world, change your life, make a difference. I often tell young people everywhere when I speak at a lot of graduations that, you know, education changed my life. When you're born in the projects of Los Angeles and the Pueblos, you, well, you come live in the projects. I was born in Hope. And your father went as far as a sixth grade because that was all they were going to allow an African-American man to do because they felt he would work the fields of Arkansas forever. And so racism stopped him from going any further. And same was true with my mother who went as far as the ninth grade. But they came to California because California represented hope and opportunity. And they came here knowing that our school systems were good systems that our University of California and our CSUs and our community colleges were basically worldwide known in terms of their ability to help people who didn't have the resources to get the education necessary. And my father told me over and over, you get an education because that's one thing that racism cannot take from you. That when you get that degree, it will open doors and you can stand eye to eye with those who look at you differently and you can transform not only them but everyone around you. And so I commend you for, for the work that you're doing, that you have you put yourself in a position to really, really make a difference for so many. And you will not be able to, even at this point, imagine the journey that you will take. If someone had said to me, you're going to be an assemblywoman in California, I, said, I would have said, no way. If they told me that I, they, if they said you would meet presidents and governors and all kinds of policy people around the world, I would say, not me. I'm this kid from the projects who didn't have books in our household but had books in her school, who didn't know a lot about what was going to happen to her, but her teachers had a vision for her greater than herself. And so it's extremely important that what you're doing, that you have no way to imagine where it's going to take you, but every experience is valuable and every experience you should grab. The unique thing is that we're, you're in California, and California is now becoming the most diverse state in the nation, with all of us coming together as one huge family. And that is being reflected in a whole lot of things. And it ought to be reflected in the policies that we make and the things that we do. You know, right now, the assembly uh, is over 50% African-American, Latinos, APIs, and women, and LGBT. And I remind them regularly uh, from whence we've come. And I remind them that people sent us to, to the assembly not to do what was done before by 80 white men but what is going to be done by this diverse population that's going to be responsive to the needs of the people of California. And that with the numbers in our house, we can do anything we choose to do if we stay focused and get the work done at hand. So it's extremely important that you're here. A friend of mine uh, talked about the fact that it's important to be at the table, to make the decisions, to be a part of it. He had a say that always says, if you're not at the table, 
you're on the menu. And that is so true. <laughs> so true. You will find you will be the victims of all of those who want to eat. And so you have to make sure that you're in there helping to make the decisions that are extremely important. I'm not going to talk very long because I know you have a lot of things to do and you want to get your stuff done. You want to get your degrees and you want to get out and you really want to open up the world. But, and we now are at a crossroad. But I want to challenge you, uh, the fact that you're at a crossroad. California, with all of its great things it's done in the past, I decided to run for the assembly because I was becoming frustrated with what was happening to our universities and our community colleges and our CSUs. And I didn't think and still don't really know if, if people, the legislature, fully understands the gift that we have in higher education, the gift that we have that is so powerful that really has formed California into what it is. And I don't know if they have the sense of urgency that I have that our K-12 system is failing our children and that we also have to rescue that system if we're going to sustain this system. And so it becomes a, a constant struggle to talk about change and how we're going to make change. And so I, wanted, I really want to tell you a little bit about my journey in the assembly. And I've been known kind of as a change agent, a person who takes no, never takes no for an answer, who somehow or another faces the biggest giants in California, which is the public safety lobbyist and the school's lobbyist, and look them eye to eye because of what I believe in and what I know California has the potential to become. I want to talk about change, change in California. And change is not easy. Sometimes we have a bright idea and we think, that is so simple. But let me tell you, someone is invested in the status quo. Someone's making their money on it. Someone has made their life on it. Someone's made their reputation. And so when you start talking about bringing change, it is not an easy task. Even in the face of all the negative things we see sometimes, as we saw over the last couple of years with police brutality, even with all of that, we had over 20-some-odd bills in the House to talk about body cameras and racial profiling. And out of that 20-some-odd bills, two survived. One that was really just a paper bill. The other one was AB 953, my bill dealing with racial profiling. I felt very strongly that here I am, a woman of color, whose brothers and fathers have been harassed all of their lives. And I don't have the courage to fight for racial profiling data, to change California. If not, then what am I here for? And so it becomes a situation that even when we saw all of the movies and the videos and everything we saw, people were hesitant about bringing change in a critical area in California. Because for so long, people didn't believe it even existed until people got their cell phones and started videotaping and it went beyond Rodney King and it went to everybody's neighborhood and across the nation. Then you would think, oh my God, they will want to change. Well, they didn't. And the battle was great. And so it made me recognize that change is not the easiest thing to do. It is not the easiest thing to do. Even when you have all the data, even when you have the information, people want you to slow down. Don't go so fast. Give us time. Wait. And from generation to generation, people wait on our school systems to get better, on our police forces to get better, on our social, system, social service system to solve its own problems. We wait while millions and millions of people are struggling in poverty and struggling to get an education, struggling in one of the greatest states in the nation, and we're still waiting. I want to talk to you about the things that are important for change. When I was teaching at San Diego State, I often used a book that's kind of beat up and battered now. It's called From Poverty to Dignity and I, by Hamden Turner. And this book talked about a lot of things and how do you bring change. But it talked about two things that were really important, and so I want you to think about change in the big C. 
and think about three things that, that have to exist for change to occur. One, he talks about competence. Two, he talks about commitment. And three, I talk about courage. Those are the three things that are critical to bring change. You see, it is extremely important that you're competent, that you have the degrees, that you have the material, that you have the information. Because I can guarantee you that someone's going to challenge that information. They're going to challenge that data. They're going to challenge your knowledge and your ability to not only know facts, but to connect them together to arrive at a conclusion about how we bring change. And so you have to be good. You have to be very competent. You have to know your stuff. And although you've mastered this, there's so much more that you will learn about organizations and about agencies and about other data and how you collect it and how you use it and how you use that to inform the policies that you want to make. So it's going to be important, one, that you're prepared, that you are competent and you're there. One of the things Hamlin and Turner talked about was so tragic was to find people in communities who really wanted to bring change, but they had no knowledge. They didn't know anything about the system. They didn't know who to call. They didn't know what door to go through. They didn't know how to deal with the data that was there. And many of them couldn't even read the data, but they had the passion and the drive for change. And so you need those who are change agents to also be highly competent. The second thing you need is, is to, to basically to talk about commitment. Commitment is, is extremely important because without commitment, very little will happen. Ron Edmonds talks about the fact that we know everything, he says, we know everything there is to educate children in California or in the nation, everything. He says we lack one thing, and that's the will, the commitment to make it happen. And so as a result, we go in circles and circles and circles with more and more information, more and more data about what's going on because we don't have the will to bring the change. We don't have the commitment to bring the change. And I can tell you it is not something that happens easily and quickly. It takes a lot of focus and a lot of energy to actually talk about change and the commitment that's there. But without commitment, when you only have competence, you have people who have a lot of knowledge but won't do anything. Or you have people who really want to bring change, but they don't know where to go. Hamden Turner says, when you put together competence and commitment, you have a, willing, a winning team. You have those who not only know what to do, but who have the will to do it. And that's critical, and that's where you come in. You know, because you've got the knowledge. You've, you've been adequately prepared in one of the best graduate schools in public policy in the world. So you've got that piece of paper. You've got that certification. You've been stamped on the chest. But the bottom line is, do you have the, the commitment? Do you have the desire to bring change? And that commitment comes, obviously, from where you've come from and where, how you see your circumstance and your desire to basically bring the same kind of opportunity and change for others. It is critical when we look at the policies that have been developed over the years that most of those policies do not in any way address the needs of the people of California. When you think of things like the maximum family grant, when you think about all of those ugly things that we had in California, they were not a reflection of the people of California, but they were nonetheless the policies of those who were making them. And so it became important for us to talk about how do you bring change? How do you get the change that you want? And how do you make these things happen? It is truly, truly important that you are committed to bringing change. And many people are committed to themselves. I understand that. But there'll be some of you who will be committed to basically taking your degree, being the policy advocates, advocating and giving a voice to those who don't have a voice, and speaking up for those who, who, need, to be, who need to have you speak up for them. I often tell folks when I, I, when I stand up in the assembly and fight for issues, it's not about Shirley Weber. She's got hers. It's not about me getting reelected because if I don't get reelected, I'm not going to cry. But it, it, but it boils down to be, 
it boils down to be me representing a group of people whose shoulders I stand on, who gave me an opportunity to be a voice for them, who allowed me to develop policy for them, and, and told me that I could transform California with better policies and better outlook and better opportunities for young people around the world. And so it becomes important that we, that we see ourselves as change agents. So not only do you have to be competent and committed, the last thing is that you must have courage. You must have courage. You know, it's interesting when we think of Dorothy and the, uh, the Wizard of Oz, and one wanted a brain, and one wanted a heart, and another wanted, they wanted courage. They want, one wanted courage. Why? Because Maya Angelou says, without courage, it is impossible to consistently implement your values if you don't have courage. Because someone's going to challenge your values. And can you stand up for those who you walk with every day? Do you have the courage to stop the racist kind of comments that people make? Do you have the courage to, to, to basically change the world? This is talking about having the strength of your convictions to basically stand up and to fight. I can tell you that it takes a lot of courage because people want to, uh, and people want to basically stay as they are. I, I decided when I was a 23-year-old faculty member at San Diego State, that those who lack courage when I was untenured and brand new, those people who lack courage during those years, they also lack courage when they became full professors. It, didn't, it wasn't about not having tenure, and it wasn't about being insecure in your job. It was basically their makeup. They were people who lacked courage. They could not fight the battle. They could not fight a battle that they felt they might lose, and if they lost, then regroup themselves and come forward with another battle. Courage is something that you must have. And I can tell you there will be many who will be out to get you, who will attack you. So you have to have an understanding of self and an appreciation for who you are and how you got to where you are and what your commitment is. We passed AB 953, the racial profiling bill, last year. And I can tell you that there were many sleepless nights. There were people attacking me from every point of view that you could imagine. Even my colleagues in the assembly were nervous and concerned because public safety didn't like the bill on racial profiling, that it was a national bill that would change data collection and hopefully change the trajectory of our police departments and their relationship with the public to give us the data that we needed, simply data. And so we had lots and lots of people complaining about me bringing this bill forward. But most importantly, I had the support of the grassroots people in the assembly the grassroots people who came to the assembly regularly. We had a vigil that occurred for 24 hours for three weeks concerning racial profiling 953 to force the governor to sign that bill because he had decided he would not sign it. And it was really the will of the people. And I felt honored that the people had enough uh, thought of me to basically have me carry this bill, to author this bill. And I can remember sitting in a room with them where we had to make a decision about whether or not I was going to move forward with it as a mandate and a requirement of the state. And in that room, folks had said, well, if you don't make it a mandate, the police will support it, the district attorneys will support it, and so forth and so on. And I sat in that room and I looked, and I looked in the faces of those people who I had worked with for many years. I saw the ministers and the advocates and the people in our community who have suffered so long and all they was asking was for a little girl from Hope, Arkansas, to hold fast, to keep and hold on to it. And I said, let me think about it. And I went home and prayed about the revisions they wanted to make to weaken this bill. And the first thing popped in my mind was surely my father, 
who had been run out of Arkansas, they were going to lynch him because he refused to say yes, sir, and no, sir, to those who didn't respect him and called him a boy. And I remembered that, and I thought, hmm, if my dad could do that, what am I doing? Then I thought about the people on, in Selma, on the bridge, who didn't know what was on the other side of the bridge, but they walked on that bridge with courage because they believed in something greater than themselves, and in essence, they believed in me. And so when I came back the next morning, they were all gathered in my office, and I said, the bill is done. We move forward with it. We forced the governor to sign this bill because this is a just bill, and I am the person who needs to carry this bill because I've never forgotten whence I've come, and I wanted to hold fast to the dreams that I had about changing California, and I wanted to move forward. So I, cur- I ask you to, to look at yourself and, and, and begin to recognize the necessity of courage, to think about all those who got you here and how you got here, to think about those who started this school, but also think about your parents and your relatives and your friends who fought so hard just to get you in this position and that you should never forget from whence you've come. Never forget those who, who, who paved the way for you. Never forget that they are counting on you, counting on you to be the change agent for them. They could all never imagine being in this room themselves, but they're counting on you now because they've laid the foundation for you then to pull us all forward. I am truly honored that as we talk about the issues that are there, that you will take the, 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 the baton from me and so many others, and that you will begin to talk about all those critical issues in California. The persistent achievement gap in our K-12 system has to be dealt with. Our governor says he doesn't believe it can ever happen. It has to happen because it happened for you and it happened for me. And so we have to begin to talk about the achievement gap. We have to deal with the issues of poverty. California has the highest poverty rate of any state in the nation. And yet we're the wealthiest state with the most beautiful uh, homes and places that people live in. And yet we have deep poverty in California. Deep poverty. We have to deal with that. We have to talk about how do we reduce recidivism. How do we change what we're doing in our prisons? And we're slowly making that change. But I fear every day as we talk about change and trying to change our penal system, that every day there comes across my desk and others a bill to take us back, a bill to criminalize more individuals, to take minor offenses and make them felonies and have more time in prison. And it goes on and on and on. People hold on to those things out of fear of what the future might hold. I hope you will be the change agent that is so important. Every day of my life, I live with the reality that nothing is going to happen unless I do it. And somebody says, that's kind of arrogant. I said, no, that puts the fire under me. That makes me realize that when things go bad, I have to ask the question, what is it that I didn't do right? If a child drops out of high school, I want to know, what did I meet that child? Did I see them somewhere? Did I do something that I could have done differently that would rescue that person? None of us should feel like that it's somebody else's job. It's, It's somebody else's America. It's somebody else's future. You should be holding on to the fact that you've got this education, you've got this training, you ought to have that passion, that commitment, and that courage to stand up and fight. I'm going to close with the story that I felt my, one of my best, one of my, one of my persons that I admired the most was Fannie Lou Hamer. And Fannie Lou Hamer, if you haven't read about Fannie Lou Hamer, you need to read about her. Fannie Lou Hamer was an amazing woman with a limited education, but yet she fought so hard for people in in Mississippi to have the right to vote and challenge them in the Democratic Party. Fannie Lou Hamer was an amazing woman. But she told a story once about an old man who everybody thought was so smart and he knew everything. And these children had decided that since he knows everything, we're going to trick this old man. 
So we're going to go up to him and we're going to say, oh man, oh man, we know you're the smartest man in the world. And then we're going to have a bird in their hand. And they said, we got a bird in our hand. And can you tell us, since you're so smart, whether the bird is alive or dead? And the man looked, and, and so they went to the old man. They said, if he says he's alive, we'll crush him and show him that he's dead. But if he says he's dead, we'll open our hands and let him fly free because we're going to win this battle. And so they went to the old man. They said, oh man, oh man, you're the smartest man in the world. We've got a bird here in our hand. Can you tell us if he's alive or is he dead? And the old man looked at them and said, his future is in your hands. And that's what you need to understand, that when we talk about what is happening in California and what is happening in the U.S. and around the world, whether it's climate change or whatever it is, it's not somebody else's job. It is your job. The future of California, the futures of the universities, the future of the United States as we know it, the future of people in the world is really our business. That's who we are. And the future is in our hands. Congratulations. I wish you well. God be with you. So Assemblymember Weber is sorry, but she has to go off and work in Sacramento. They've got a session this afternoon. So you can see that she's getting things done, so we want her there. Thank you so much for a wonderful commencement speech. So now we start with student speakers, Sonia Petek, who needs no introduction. Thank you, Dean Brady. And thank you to Dr. Weber. I know she's not, not here any longer, but what an act to follow. This is a little intimidating. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> okay, show of hands. How many of you are fans of This American Life? Yeah, me too. Me too. So, inspired by Ira Glass. Where do we go from here? A graduation speech in 2X. Act one, what exactly did this school do to us? When I arrived at the Goldman School, I had been conducting public opinion research at a, think at a think tank. If you've ever worked in policy research, you might relate to a primary discomfort I felt at GSPP as we started slogging our way through timed policy memos. In policy research, recommendations, if made at all, are made cautiously and without overreach beyond research findings. These memos, on the other hand, um, I'm supposed to say what a Fresno County supervisor should do about drought conditions, and I'm supposed to do it in 12 hours. <laughs> I must recommend changes to the long-term capital gains tax in 60 hours. Okay, <laughs> how do I know? <laughs> but as our professor Dan Acklin said, in policy analysis, sometimes you have to put on your gas mask and get in the garbage compactor. <laughs> Lesson number one. Policy research and policy analysis are subtly different. Lesson number two. Policymakers rarely have the luxury of time. Decisions are made when the policy window opens. You can prepare and plan, but sometimes they need that memo and they need it in an hour. 
Lesson number three, an analytic framework will improve the decision-making process. In addition to helping us find the true economic equilibrium between rice and beans, <laughs> an analytic framework is what GSPP gave us. For many, the strict adhesion to an analytic framework came as a surprise. One classmate said they were surprised by, quote, how much the education was based on a methodology rather than a morality or a feeling. GSPP is not a training ground for advocates, public managers, or community organizers per se. It's a training ground for analysts. Students learn to break a problem down into its tractable elements, as one classmate put it. The framework begins by asking, what is the problem? And is this a public problem? And you really wouldn't believe how difficult those questions are to answer. It includes analysis of data and research, weighing the trade-offs, projecting the outcomes, and finally making some recommendations. The common thread for everyone was that GSPP was teaching us a way to approach problems that was different than what we were accustomed to and perhaps for some of us outside of our comfort zone. In one of my classes this spring, my classmate Julie said to Professor Avi Feller, I can tell you how airplanes fly, but statistics is magic. <laughs> and Avi replied, I'm not teaching you to be a magician. I'm teaching you to be a wizard. <laughs> Act two. Let's make smoothies if we can. Why do people throw around the phrase sausage making when they talk about public policy? Why not smoothie making? I hate thinking about the process that affects so many lives as the gnarly bits and throwaways getting ground up into a meaty, uncooked mash and stuffed into a casing. <laughs> but there's no denying that policymaking is a messy, messy process. The ingredients can be unsavory. The politics, the money, the egos, the backroom deals, the short-sightedness, the conventional thinking. What does that mean for us graduates? In a survey of my classmates, nearly all intend to be policy analysts, advisors, researchers, program managers, or consultants. In other words, we will be influencing policy decisions. But look at what awaits us in 2016. In this increasingly polarized time, a dangerous time really, when the public's trust in government is at historic lows, elected officials would rather risk the country's credit or shut down the government than compromise. The vitriol and hatefulness have reached a fever pitch in this election cycle. Where does that leave 80 graduates dedicated to public service in one form or another? I would argue that the method with which we've been equipped at GSPP gives us the ability, nay, the duty, to infuse the process with as much evidence-based analysis as possible. This is a lot harder than it sounds. The other players in the process will have an agenda, they will want us to come to certain conclusions, ignore certain facts, and make certain assumptions. This makes our duty more vital than ever. For one, it requires that we check our assumptions, and then recheck, and then check again. It's crucial we recognize we, what we don't know, that data might not tell the whole story, that policies are not made in a vacuum, and that policies are usually made incrementally. Like Dr. Weber said, the players in the process have traditionally been men and white men, and where does that leave the rest of us? 
It requires that we check our personal biases. We will bring our own biases to our work. It's a basic truth. But it's important that we are mindful of what they are and that we make appropriate adjustments as best we can. It requires that we remember there are people, actual people, voters, taxpayers, program beneficiaries, children, seniors, immigrants, at the end of the policies. Our nat or national forests, waterways, air, snowy plovers, salmon. <laughs> our recommendations have consequences. We mustn't let our role as policy experts insulate us from the ramifications of the decisions we recommend. And it requires humility. One classmate said to me, the best thing this school has helped me realize is the importance of humility. I now value the importance of humbling myself and admitting that I don't know it all, but that I'm willing to work with others to try to figure it out. Hear, hear. As we leave today, I assure you the policymaking process is in better hands with my classmates. They are an amazing bunch. They have the humor to arrive at a final exam, and in fact, at graduation, <laughs> in a banana costume. They have the mutual respect and civility to immediately share resources when they find them, rather than hoarding them for personal gain. They have the curiosity to go beyond the assignment to widen their circle of knowledge. It really gives me hope that this thoughtful, smart, and feeling group will be influencing policy decisions. Okay, class, I, we, we really made it. And I want to quickly thank each of you. Thank you for the honor of speaking to you today. And um, I would also like to thank Dean Brady and the amazing GSPP faculty and administration. And if you'll humor me for one moment, I'd also like to publicly acknowledge and thank my partner, Jim, whose unflagging support and encouragement has really helped me. It is now my distinct pleasure to invite to the podium my delightful friend, classmate, and future colleague, Jeanette Ling, who was also selected to speak today. Thank you, as Sonia just said. Thank you, our distinguished faculty, our supportive staff, our cool IT guys, I see you, our loving family and friends, and then the reason why we're all here, my fellow members of the class of 2016. <laughs> Congratulations. All right. I'm also very honored to have been chosen as one of the student speakers today, mostly because there are just so many others that would have given outstanding speeches. When I was told that I got enough votes to be one of the speakers, I said, this must be a mistake. There's some, like, cruel joke going on because Lyndon told me on April Fool's Day. <laughs> so since then, I've been thinking a lot about what to say. And I'm not going to talk about how to be successful or how to best make change because I'm going to leave that to the experts like Assemblymember Weber, who did an amazing job, because I'm also just trying to figure all those things out. And honestly, I'm confident that each and every one of you is going to be successful and bring positive change in your own unique ways. 
So instead, I want to talk about the three main lessons I learned from these past two years. You're getting a lot of lessons today. You thought your classes were over, but not so much. And I hope these lessons will serve as reminders for all of you as we continue on our own path to success. So the first lesson I learned while at GSPP is that we're human. And I know that sounds obvious, right? But when you're surrounded by all of you extraordinary people, it's really easy to forget. So everyone came to GSPP with their own ex expertise and accomplished background. I was and still am just in complete awe of you all. You are constantly teaching me new ways of thinking, and this whole time I was just waiting for everyone to figure out that I was a complete fraud. It's like that's, I somehow tricked GSPP, GSPP into letting me in. And then when I finally learned about imposter syndrome, I was like, yep, definitely have that. <laughs> but I realized that the answer isn't to be overly confident, because that's part of the toxic cycle that is imposter syndrome. So our grades, our awards, our accomplishments, even this MPP degree from the number one public policy school does not define us as human beings, right? Rather, how we choose to treat other people and how we impact other people's lives will define us. And as we continue to succeed in our future careers, we're going to be surrounded by more and more successful people who appear to be superhuman. As suddenly member Shirley Weber, she had her PhD at 26, what? Like, we can it's okay, but that's the delusion, right? Remind yourself that we're just human. So secondly, I learned that it's okay to be human and that actually people like you most when you are. Remember our second semester first year when everything was due? We had a quant problem set, econ midterm, politics memo, IPA draft, et cetera, et cetera. I was writing all my to-do lists for that April when I received a call from my mom that my grandfather passed away after battling from a really severe stroke. And unfortunately, I'm not the only one who had had to deal with tragedy and misfortune during our time at GSVP. But like many others, I tried my best to hide all my feelings that I was going to push through so I could just cross all of these things off of my endless to-do list, right? I was attempting to be superhuman. That semester, I was also teaching Econ 1 for undergrads. And when I informed my students that I would be absent for a family emergency to attend my grandfather's funeral, my voice cracked. I was about to break down in front of my students, and I had been so proud of myself for keeping it together. And I think that was actually the moment that my students liked me the best, when I was vulnerable, when I was relatable, when I showed them that I, too, am human. Many of them came up to me after class. Some of them emailed me really kind words, and they were all wishing me well. My grandfather was actually very accomplished. He was a political science professor and dean at Jinju University. He worked for the Taiwanese government and loved to brag about how he helped implement universal health care in Taiwan, like he was Barack Obama or something, right? <laughs> but I'm not going to remember him for all of those things. I love him most for all the things that made him human. I'm going to remember his booming laugh, his baby face that he had even at age 92, I kid you not. I'm going to remember the times I would fall asleep in his bed and he'd have to carry me to mine. So understand that the people who care about you most are not going to remember you for your academic or professional accomplishments. You won't be remembered for the cool research projects you did, the impressive internships and jobs you got, or the fact that you're listed on Forbes 30 under 30. <laughs> You'll be remembered for the difference you made in other people's lives, not just advancing your own, for your friendship and your mentorship. So the third lesson I learned at GSPP is that as humans, we're just trying to figure out what the truth is, right? But there's actually not one policy area or methodology that represents our collective truth. 
You might believe that a certain policy area is most important and pervasive, whether it be housing, health, education, national security, I see you, Julie, environmental policy, etc. You might believe that an experiment, survey, interview, or statistical model provides the most compelling evidence and policy analysis. And each of you have been so persuasive and passionate in advocating your issue area or specific methodology that you have taught me that it's all important. And so Sonia talked about how we should be mindful of the people behind our research and that our policies will impact. And I can agree more. Our job now is to use the tools we gained at GSPP, gather as much evidence as possible so that we can speak to these multiple truths and empower the people and communities around us. So you taught me that we can all be experts and continue learning. That's what we did coming in, right? Now, as we leave, we must use the tools that GSPP gave us to learn more and better understand each other as humans. So I want to leave you with a Chinese proverb, mostly because my grandma's here, and she hasn't been able to understand a word of the ceremony. <laughs> also, I think it's important to look back and learn from our heritage. Which means, to learn without thinking is labor loss. To think without learning is dangerous. So having an MPP doesn't define us. What defines us is how we will use it. Thank you. And now, sit down. And now I'm going to call Ari Edinger to the podium, who will present the Class of 2016 gift to the school. Wow, um, this looks amazing uh, from up here. Congratulations, everybody. Well done, all of us. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I was not uh, voted by my classmates to be up here. Um, I volunteered to uh, be on the 2016 class gift committee, um, and I also did not know at the time that volunteering for that would get me up here, but I'm so glad to be up here. Uh, it really looks incredible, um, and you all look wonderful from down there as well. Um, <laughs> Debbie, thank you for the hat. Um, to the about 15 or 20 of you who helped me put this thing on, thank you. Um, my parents, um, yeah. Uh, I decided it would be fun not to tell them I was coming up here today. Um, but I did, uh, I prepared you for this moment. I snuck some Kleenex in your pockets this morning, so. Um, and to all the parents and um, friends and family, partners, uh, the faculty and the, the staff, um, thank you all for being here to celebrate uh, this day with us. Um, one thing that uh, every class at GSPP gets to do to celebrate their graduation is to um, give back through a uh, class gift. Um, so, as I said, I, I, I agreed to be on this committee, and Mark and Sharmila and I got together, and we um, decided, uh, kind of put our heads together and, and thought about how to go through this process, and we enlisted the help of all of our classmates who um, took their time and, uh, between APAs and, um, I, did, were other people doing other things, too? 
um, APAs teaching, uh, working like real jobs, like in San Francisco, some of you, um, and you know, classes, projects, um, took some additional time that none of us had uh, to think about how we wanted to, um, to give back uh, in some meaningful way to uh, the Goldman School of Public Policy. So um, in the end, we decided on two gifts, which in fact has now turned into three gifts, which some of you don't know. Um, so the first one is uh, we are going to be donating um, a, a brand new um, coffee table for the outside seating area. Um, before, you know, someone, someone cracks their, yeah, well, it's, it's currently, a, there's a, some precarious um, seating out there, and so uh, we, we, we wanted to, um, to fix that problem. Um, so, so we'll have, uh, we're going to have some new benches outside, um, hopefully with our class um, year and everything in, engraved in that. The second thing is that Jacob has pledged to donate a can jam set to go along with the furniture um, so that future first years uh, can have a little bit of fun in their lives. Um, and, um, and lastly, and I, and I think most importantly, and I think um, what our class is most proud of and excited for uh, is that we're going to be donating um, over $2,000 to future GSPP scholarship funds. Um, so thank you everyone for giving and giving your time. And thank you all. Congratulations. Um, <clears throat> and um, with that, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce, this, this is going to be a great introduction, um, introduce a professor who I never had, <laughs> but a professor who I've heard from multiple people is truly fantastic. Um, and you might not remember this, um, but we emailed a little bit. Uh, what, jo Jonathan, I think, he talked about that personal touch here. We emailed when I was trying to decide what school to go to. You were very kind um, to talk to me because I think you were busy at that time with something about to be busy. Um, and so I really appreciated that. And it actually helped me make the decision to come here. So uh, Professor Sarah Anzia. Hi, everyone. This is always one of my favorite days of the year, for a lot of reasons. I think my kids think it's Halloween, but um, <laughs> this year's extra special because I get to present the award for Outstanding Graduate Student Instructor. We call them GSIs. So each year at commencement, we present this award to a graduate who has worked as a GSI for a GSPP course. And this year, the Outstanding GSI Award goes to Christina Baumgartner. <laughs> Can you come up, Christina? And I confess, I don't know where the award is, so if anyone would like to point me in that direction, that would be wonderful. So Chris, Christina is, uh, was a GSI for my politics course in the fall. This is a class about blending good policy with good politics. Uh, as you probably know, um, making public policy doesn't, isn't just a matter of finding some best policy that automatically gets adopted and implemented. Almost always, 
Achieving the outcomes you desire requires collective action, social engagement, understanding what elected officials and agency managers value, what they're thinking about. It takes negotiation and coalition building. It takes a political strategy, in other words. And so this, that's what this class is about. And it's extra fun because we don't have a final exam or a final paper. We have a budget simulation. Um, I know that sounds really fun, but it is. <laughs> So every student is assigned a role. Most people are U.S. senators, but we also have members of the Obama administration, CBO analysts, we have the media. And over the course of three weeks, culminating in a final session, uh, the students have to hash out and adopt a budget resolution. So Christina this year was the sole GSI for this class of 70 students. The first thing I want to say is this was an enormous amount of work. Um, and she taught two sections per week. She helped me oversee the whole budget simulation. Um, she graded three policy memos and a midterm exam for 70 students. I mean, this is so much work that I think probably at the beginning of the semester I gave her some version of, I guess what I'll, I'll call the stressed out working mom of two young kids pep talk. It was, so it goes something like this. You, some of you probably heard it. Um, it. You're juggling a lot. Let's be realistic. You, uh, you, know, you cannot do it all well. Um, you cannot do it all perfectly, so don't try. And you're going to have to make decisions about what gets done well and what gets done less well. And so for Christina in this case, this was relevant because I told her, look, you have the work of 70 students to manage. Do what it takes to get it done. And she did. But I can tell you, she did not sacrifice quality. I know for a fact that she gave detailed comments on every policy memo she graded, uh, really helping the students to improve their writing and their analysis. But what really blew me away about Christina was the creativity and dedication she brought to planning and teaching her sections. I don't, frankly, think I ever told her what to do in section, mostly because I, might, I was giving myself the same pep talk and trying to delegate. But I, I probably gave her some guidelines from, from time to time. But basically, she designed and executed this part of the course all on her own. And what she came up with was brilliant. Just to give you a few examples, um, after a class on legislatures, I said, oh, how, is section, how did section go? And she said that she decided to dedicate the section to a discussion of Eric Cantor and his surprising electoral loss and what that teaches us about how legislators think and um, how they behave and what policies they're likely to support or not support. And then in another section, she found this video of Ted Cruz and Dianne Feinstein debating gun control. And she uses to stimulate a discussion about how party polarization has affected the policymaking process in Washington. And then I'm going to read you a little bit from her email in this case. Sorry, Christina. <laughs> So I should, this is from her email, quote, Sections today went well. I had them break into groups, read the attached op-ed, and then debate as a class whether or not bilingual education is likely to be on the agenda next year in Congress. I played the congresswoman from California, desperate to take on an issue that would actually be on the agenda, and I asked them to think like they were my staffers, advising me on whether this issue fit the bill. It was fun. <laughs> So if this class ended up being fun and relevant, that was in large part to Christina's truly excellent work. And she kept me on track, which some of you know is no small feat. I remember that a week, about a week before the budget simulation, I got an email from Christina at about 10 p.m. with the title, not an urgent need, but we do still need a gavel. And in the body of the email was a link to a gavel for me to click on and purchase. So Christina... Christina was critical to making that class a success. She's so creative and dedicated in her teaching, so organized and hardworking. So, Christina, I am very pleased to present you with the Outstanding GSI Award because you really deserve it.
want to thank all of the fellow GSIs and the community of support from you all. This whole year has been outstanding for those who encouraged me to GSI at all, but also just tell me how to do basic things like grade things and all of that. The support from my classmates has just been incredible. And I just want to thank my partner, Cassie, and thank all the faculty here. Thank you all. Thank you, Sarah, so much. Right, I found it. <laughs> Christina, come back. Come back. I found it. Good morning. My name is Hector Cardenas, and I'm a GSPP MPP and PhD alum, and I have had the distinct pleasure and privilege to lead one of the advanced policy analysis classes this semester. Now, paraphrasing Dean Brady, what is, policy, what is an APA? What is an advanced policy analysis? It's a fundamental part of the Goldman School of Public Policy's mission which, as you know, is to train a cadre of young professionals in the methods, techniques, and ethical underpinnings of public policy analysis. Ours is a, is a practical discipline that strives, above all else, to better the world by providing real-world solutions to the problems that we face in the public square. And in this regard, to be complete, the education in which you have participated requires a capstone a policy analysis for a real client facing a real problem or opportunity. The advanced policy analysis, or APA as everybody knows it affectionately, or sometimes not so affectionately, <laughs> is precisely such a capstone that allows our students to deploy the many resources that they have learned to the analysis of a real problem. The identification through evidence, we've heard a lot about evidence today, of possible alternatives for a solution, and the crafting of feasible, and most important of all, at least in my book, implementable recommendations that their client can act upon. The school established the Smolensky Award in 1998, named to honor our Dean Emeritus, Gino Smolensky, and it's a prize to recognize the best APA in each graduating class. Faculty for e from each APA section nominate one APA project from their section to be considered for this honor. Then a committee of faculty who are not teaching APA review all nominated projects and select a winning project. This year, professors Jane Molden and Sarah Anzia and GSPB alum Karen Malton um, led the committee. The faculty nominated the following graduates for consideration for the Smolensky Prize. Andy Coughlin. Dina Greenblum, Liz Jane, Graham McDonald, Adil Quenarouche, Taylor Smiley Wolf, Ali Sutton, and Cesar Manuel Sulaika Pinero. This year's selection committee took a great deal of effort to trying to decide on one person for the Smolensky Prize. This was a year of extraordinary APAs, and I am pleased to announce that the committee has selected two graduates for this award. The first graduate selected as winner of the Smolensky Prize for Outstanding Advanced Policy Analysis is Cesar Manuel Zulaika Pineda. 
ASR's APA is entitled Funding Education Loans in the Developing World, a Framework for Identifying Potential Partners. He developed it for Kiva, a nonprofit organization with a mission to connect people through lending to alleviate poverty all around, all around the world. Cesar's APA deals with an important topic in economic development. How do you identify and distinguish educational loan programs that have a high likelihood of being both financially sustainable and delivering positive impacts for their beneficiaries? The APA frames this problem as a decision problem for a nonprofit funder, Kiva, yet this is a public policy question that is equally relevant for governments and international aid organizations. Cesar's approach was extremely creative. Faced with lack of data, he created his own database through an exhaustive review of the literature, from which he gleaned the key dimensions that researchers believe make for successful loan programs. Cesar went a step further and developed a survey instrument based on these findings and submitted it to 17 experts identified around the world. He got their cooperation, known mean feat in and of itself, and I really ask all of you when you're experts, please return emails and use their answers to create an index that measures the likelihood of success and failure for any given program. He used a sophisticated Bayesian inference approach, which is a lot of, lots of lines, diagonal ones in the equation, um, that his client can now use to assess loan programs as part of the due diligence process. As a responsible and ethical policy analyst, Cesar is also very cautious in identifying the limits of the work he has done and highlighting the flaws and biases that may be embedded in his data and approach. Yet he considered a wide variety of alternatives, over 90 features of long programs that he identified in his literature review, and thankfully, for me at least, were not included in the APA write-up. <laughs> Although Cesar used statistical techniques with which he is very comfortable, this APA really stretched his comfort zone, as he had to find a reasonable way to create data where no data existed. Cesar's work reflects well on the spirit of the Smolensky Award as it represents student work that is not just of very high quality, but in which the student struggled and stretched his analytical repertoire. Congratulations, Cesar, on a very successful culmination to your time at GSPP. And now I would like to call Dan Lingheim to the stage who will present the second APA award. So myself and Hector and six other professors chaired the, the um, the APA course this, this uh, semester, and we all struggled through trying to figure out who our best students were. Um, the person who wins the second or the other of the two Smolensky <laughs> Awards, I'll just choose to say the first of the Smolensky Awards, um, in the first day of class when I talked about the Smolensky Award, 
two or three of the people in our section said, well, I know who's going to get it. I'm not even going to bother. <laughs> so I did my very, very best to make sure that that person was not selected. And despite my very best efforts, <laughs> I, I couldn't avoid the selection. And it gives me great pleasure to announce that the Smolensky Award also goes to Graham McDonald. <laughs> Graham's APA is titled The Effect of Local Government Policies on Housing Supply. This school is all about analyzing trade-offs. It's all about creating data. And as you heard about Cesar's um, APA, where Cesar created his own data, one of the most amazing things about Graham's project is he created his data as well. And he went out and interviewed all of the leading developers and policymakers in the field of housing and affordable housing and created an incredible database of information that just does not otherwise exist. Graham not only discusses and analyzes trade-offs in building housing and affordable housing, and he did this at great length, he also created an interactive model by which other people can analyze all of these various factors that go into whether a project is feasible or not feasible. And it makes it so you can even yell and scream at Graham and say, no, your conclusions are not the right conclusions because you created the model that I can disagree with. And we struggled over some of the conclusions from his <laughs> model. But let me just give you some indication of all of the different factors and variables that Graham talks about. He talks about land costs. He talks about construction costs. He talks about the impacts of rents that could be charged for the housing. He talks about affordable housing policies, such as inclusionary zoning, such as developer fees and affordability levels. He talks about zoning requirements, about ground floor retail. He talks about density. He talks about height. He talks about CEQA issues. He talks about permitting delays and how permitting delays within a city planning department or a zoning department can really affect the feasibility of a project. He talks about the financial returns to housing developers. He talks about the financial returns to investors and how each of these all interact to determine whether a project is feasible. Too many legislators, too many analysts, and too many advocates in the housing world don't really understand the complex trade-offs affecting housing development. As Dean Brady said, one of the things we teach here is to make sure that things pencil out. And Graham and his project shows not how things just pencil out. You'll break all of the pencils you have on Graham's project. Um, but if used appropriately, Graham's work could lead to a vastly more informed policy debate. It's an incredible piece of work and very, very deserving of the Smolensky Prize. The one thing I want to part with, though, is 
Assemblywoman Weber said, we have to be committed to bringing about change. And so the issue is not just using this data to analyze and to pencil out, and in this particular case, to pencil out how difficult it is to address the housing crisis. The point really is to use this data to maybe even break your pencils when you're penciling things out, to really bring about a change and to really address the housing crisis. And I think the tools that Graham created will be used uh, in a way that I've really never seen from a prior policy effort, either student or um, professional. So I'm really honored to uh, award Graham the Smolensky Prize, and it's very, very well deserved. Thank you. Great. Well, it's my distinct pleasure to present the PhD in public policy to Patrick Sean Tanner. And I, I want to introduce you to him through the lens of his dissertation research. I served as his primary dissertation advisor, along with Jesse Rothstein and Hillary Hoynes. And his dissertation focuses on the causal effects of K-12 school reforms and seeks to understand the sources of achievement gaps by race and parental socioeconomic status. And it's really the school accountability policies in the U.S. that represent the most recent waves of major school reforms which monitor or mandate the monitoring of student performance and um, sanction or reward public schools based on the students' standardized test outcomes. And one of the unintended consequences of this high-stakes testing regime is that many dimensions of student learning that aren't captured by reading and math testament scores alone often get neglected with regard to being fostered within schools. And so Sean's major emphasis in one of his dissertation chapters is to examine what he refers to as non-cognitive skills. He's referring to those, those dimensions of leadership and self-control and self-confidence uh, and, and perseverance and other kinds of intrinsic motivation that are obviously very difficult to measure but are naturally equally as or equally as important as the more traditionally studied cognitive test outcomes. And so what his dissertation particularly emphasizes is under, uncovering the effects of the No Child Left Behind federal mandate accountability system on children's learning outcomes. And what he does is expands the domains of outcomes to include both cognitive and non-cognitive skill development from school entry through the elementary school years, middle, high school years, and beyond. And he uses three nationally representative data sets covering 35,000 students that have been followed that span the onset of the No Child Left Behind mandate, but looking both at the impacts on cognitive and non-cognitive skills. And his study represents the first nationally representative evidence we have on the effects of the No Child Left Behind federal mandate on non-cognitive skills. Now, what he recognizes 
is that roughly half of states already had implemented some type of state school accountability system prior to the federal 2001 No Child Left Behind Act. And so to identify the effects of No Child Left Behind, he looks for changes in the student developmental patterns after No Child Left Behind is implemented and then compares the developmental trajectories of children who are in states, early adopter states, who are exposed throughout their school age years to a school accountability system and compares those to students living in later adopter states who are only exposed to accountability systems much later in their school age career. And what he finds is little effect on No Child Left Behind on non-cognitive skills, on an array of non-cognitive skills through fifth grade on average nationally, but then found significant improvements in cognitive and non-cognitive skills among minorities. And it was actually somewhat surprising that he was, found no negative effects of, uh, on non-cognitive skills among minorities, given that the, the reforms really focused so heavily and almost exclusively on cognitive domains. Now, Sean's other dissertation research examines <laughs> the recent uh, school finance reform in California um, and examines impacts on the distribution of school resources as well as student outcomes. Now, in California, to fix our broken uh, school funding system beginning in 2013, they instituted the new local control funding formula that aimed to provide more equitable school funding that particularly targeted toward poor districts and with much greater flexibility in how that money could be used by local school systems. And that kind of overhaul of the school funding system represents arguably the largest uh, and most significant change in our system of funding schools and K-12 education in over four decades. And so what he finds is that the new local control funding formula led to a 20% more funding for high-need students in poor districts. And his early results, these are some of the earliest results we have of this impact, suggest the increased resources led to significant improvements in student achievement. Now, it remains to be seen whether the California experience in the longer run can become a national model for school funding equity. But finally, I just want to share that Sean is also an extremely gifted teacher in the classroom and served as the head graduate student instructor for my applied econometrics course for three consecutive years. And I can say that in my 12 years of teaching at GSPP, he was among the top and best GSIs that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And so without further ado, I want to welcome onto the stage Sean Patrick Tanner. And it's my pleasure to confer the degree. Let me do the hooding first. All right. Thank you. All right. Okay. So it's my pleasure to confer upon Patrick Sean Tanner, the Doctor of Philosophy in Public Policy. And now we will begin the presentation of the Master of Public Policy degrees.
Rezwana Abed. Catherine Aspel. Mark Christopher San Juan Bacani. Lyndon L. Berry. Alejandra Barrio. Christina Elizabeth Baumgardner. Sharmila Balur. Joseph Broadus. Sarah Brundage. Ekaterina Burton. Desiree Carver Thomas. Vanessa Giovanna Cedeno. Yojin Cho. Trinetta Chong. Ben Christopher. Adrian Chuck. Andrew S. Coglin. Ezra Cohn. Lisa Michelle Corsetto. Hannah Lynn Dodd. Hilka and Kerlin Madero. Ari Alexander Hansen Edinger. Kate Glassman. Oscar Gonzalez. Adam Gorski. Miss David William Green. Dina Ivy Greenblum. Yoel Yosef Haila. Nareda Grace Heller. Thomas Hickey. Xiao Shen Ho.
Madeline Jacobs. Liz S. Jane. Rasagya Cabra. Shin Jong Kim. Brian J. Clickstein. Sarah Coulterman. Ilona Kramer. Garner Frederick Krop. Sari Ladeen. Christian Flory Lambert. Austin Daniel Land. Jasmine LaRoche. Jeanette Lei Ling. Alexandra Lozanoff. Graham McDonald. M. Christina Malamut. Jessica Mitra Mausner. Debbie Mayer. Marcelo Cabral Milanello. Emily Moe. Caitlin Moran O'Neill. Lori Ann Ospina. Kalia Tahira Parrish. Maria Camila Perferi. Sonia Patek. Diogo Prostochimi. Adil Quenarush. Peter Radu. Miriam Stockler Rosenau. Caroline Rosenzweig. Brendan Rowan. Jacob Rukin.
Chelsea J. Samuel. Taylor J. Smiley Wolf. Rhonda Michelle Smith. Julie Booth Stabil. Allie Sutton. Julia Sinai. Rachel Teitelbaum Cower. Hiroki Tokunaga. Esteban Tobar Cornejo. Cristian Pablo Ugarte Caraval. Matthew Unrath. Jenny Vanderhyde. Daniel Wilcox. Sarah Steele Wilson. Darian James Woods. Manfei Wu. Cesar Manuel Sulaika Pinedo. That's fun. I like that. <laughs> that, that. That's really a lot of fun. Uh, I just want to say a word or two about perseverance and courage, because I think we've heard with Martha Chavez and then with uh, Assemblymember Weber about perseverance and about courage. Uh, and I think that's just so important for public policy people. And I think it's important to remember that courage is sometimes speaking out, but it's sometimes it's just doing things quietly and getting them done knowing that you're not going to get credit for it, that you're going to have other people you're working with get a lot of the credit, but that in the end you're going to get something accomplished. So courage is a complicated thing. And I want you to make sure that in your jobs, especially as you go on in your jobs, and it gets harder and harder to sort of figure out how to have that kind of courage, that you, you speak out when you have to, but you also figure out ways you can get things done, get your coworkers, get others around you to work with you to accomplish things. And that ultimately, maybe the best and finest kind of courage is people who have the courage to say, I know I'm not going to get credit for this. I know that others will get the credit, but it's the right thing to do. 
and it's what I need to do to make sure that we move on and solve problems and make the world a better place. So have that kind of courage as well as the courage to speak out. Have the courage of your convictions and the courage to work with others and let them take the credit so that you can actually get things accomplished. So that, that's my word on courage. And now, this is the one power I have as dean. Nobody knows what deans do, but this is one thing they do do. Please stand up, all graduates, almost, of the class of 2016. By virtue of the authority vested in me by the president and the regents of the University of California, I grant you this degree from the Goldman School of Public Policy. Congratulations, and you can sit down now. You've, you are MPPs. Uh, so this concludes the class of 2016 commencement exercises. Guests are invited to join us for a reception at 2607 Hearst. That's the location of the school, in case you don't know. Uh, not much of a walk from here. Uh, and congratulations again to the Goldman School Public Policy Class of 2016. Congratulations. And that's it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.